This is a story about a remarkable woman. She was trusted by American presidents and generals. Her impact on our nation can still be felt today. But you've probably never heard of her. And you might never have, if not for a high school history teacher. Well, I'm a high school history teacher in suburban Boston, and five years ago or six years ago, I saw a photograph of President Truman, big smile on his face, and next to him was, also with a big smile on her face, was a stylishly dressed uh, woman. And the caption at the bottom said, Anna Rosenberg, Assistant Secretary of Defense. And I thought, wow, I've never heard of this person. This is Christopher C. Gorham. So I assigned that name, Anna Rosenberg, to my students for their research topic or menu of research topics. And a couple of kids uh, chose her and they immediately said, Mr. Gorham, there's no, we can't find any books on her. And we then found that in 1987, her papers had been left to Harvard. So we're, we're only about 20 miles away from, from Harvard University. So my wife and I met these students down there in April of 2019. And we looked at her documents and the librarians, you know, wheeled out the, the crates and boxes and gave us the gloves. And just moments later, you know, one of the one of the girls had opened up the box and said, Mr. Gorham, come here, check this out. And it was the citation from Truman to award Anna Rosenberg the very first Medal of Freedom. And Teresa, just beyond that, it was handwritten letters from Franklin Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, General Eisenhower, Senator Johnson. President Lyndon Johnson, Lady Bird Johnson. It was a treasure trove, a roll call of history. And I thought right then and there, if there's not a book about her, I'm going to be the one to write it. We're talking about the first biography written about the incredible life of Anna Marie Rosenberg, appropriately called The Confidant. On this, Desideratum. A desideratum is something you desire as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, celebrating storytelling as essential with my author and narrator friends. Before we get into this story, I recently went to a huge in-person conference. The Audio Publishers Association gathered together hundreds of narrators and publishers and producers from all across the U.S. and abroad. One of the sponsors for that conference was Positron, and they are also sponsoring this episode. Positron is an audio proofing platform. The system helps me quickly find where I've made mistakes, gone off script or made a noise that doesn't belong in the audio. Positron's whole system is designed to help narrators like me and proofers and publishers produce more accurate and efficient audiobooks. I think by enhancing my ability a human being's ability to tell a story that Positron supports the art of audiobooks. Reach out if you want to know more. Head to Positron.com to sign up for a demo, start a free trial, and tell them thanks for sponsoring this episode. Okay, back to today's storyteller. Even as a teenager, she you know, had only been in the United States for about five years, and she's mediating a student strike that's related to uh, training, the boys training for World War One, And she's a mouthpiece uh, for thousands of students. She's a young leader. And 
you know, it was like, wow, even as a teenager, this, this person is very forceful. This, this young person is very forceful and very idealistic. And so I dug back a little bit uh, to her, um, you know, what would make a teenager, uh, immigrant teenager have such great faith in her ability to get her point across and to move the needle. And, um, you know, so I sort of went backwards and looked at her family history in Budapest and what happened there. Anna's remarkable journey began in the Austro-Hungarian Empire on the eve of the 20th century. That's narrator Anne Richardson. She shines in nonfiction work like this. Albert Lederer owned a furniture factory, and Sorolta was an author and illustrator of children's books. The family lived a comfortable, middle-class life in Budapest. I love the way you talk about her father, actually, in the beginning of the book. I thought that his influence on her and his passion, his also entrepreneurial spirit and success, clearly is a platform she jumps off of. Absolutely. And without his patriotism that he adopted almost immediately when he arrived in the United States, because he arrived two years before his family. And, you know, he was in New York from 1910 to 1912, rebuilding his life after sort of being kicked out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire by the caprice of an emperor. But by the time Anna and her sister and her mother arrived in 1912, he was a super patriot. Tears came to his eyes when he looked at the flag and, and uh, read the, the, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. And when the daughters arrived, he would take them to the Statue of Liberty. And those, that, those lessons of democracy and the symbols of democracy never left Anna. And in fact, when she left the country, during for government service and for travel during her life and her long career, she always came back to the United States and said, I just love this country. And you you love it even more when you see other countries out there in the world. Yes. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up the Statue of Liberty because that was one of the moments in that early part of the book where I think she says we visited so often we thought she would call us by name or something, you know, that yes, yes, yes. It was it was part so deeply part of a childhood. You do that a lot, actually, even as we go through things happening in the world through her life, you come back to these little moments of very personal detail. There's there's a moment where you even talk about the last steps that FDR takes, I think. Like you, I don't know, you weave in these moments that are very personal, even in how you explain her. Oh, Anna is energized and caffeinated and hardworking. Yes. How did you get to know her so well? It was, uh, Teresa, it was, that was a difficult process. You know, I'm a, I'm a history teacher, like I said, and I, I found that very challenging to p- bring the human element and the, to weave together all of these pivot points of history that Anna Rosenberg was involved in from 1917 through the 20s, through meeting the Roosevelts as a very young woman, through the New Deal, through World War II and Korea, and into even the Vietnam era, to weave all of those pivot points together um, I had to teach myself and learn and emulate other writers how to make that interesting, you know, and yeah, my, my godfather said he read an early draft and he said, you mentioned these apartments that she's lived in, but you never really described the apartments. So I, I went through and I, you know, you can, you can learn about those buildings. They're still in New York. They still stand. And if you go back to the old newspapers, you can see what they look like and how they were furnished and you know, how many steps she had to walk up where the milkman left the, the milk and the mail was left in the mailroom. And so I was able to sort of, you know, describe her apartments and describe sometimes in the newspaper clippings, there would be, or the old newspaper articles, they would describe what she wore. They often did that. Yes. Because she was, you know, she was very stylish dresser. So 
I, I'm glad that you mentioned that. The, the, it helped the readability, but it was, uh, it was hard for me to learn and hard for me to, to do. Waving away a cloud of cigar smoke, Anna rose to speak. With preciseness and fluency, she made the case for returning to the normal school day. The student paper of DeWitt Clinton High School went on to report that Miss Anna Lederer, the principal speaker for the student delegation, brought down the house with her enthusiastic eloquence. Anna's advocacy impressed the aldermen, as well as a reporter for the New York Globe, who asked bystanders, who is that girl with the forceful personality? It's easier to go through her resume. Sure than it is to sort of flesh out who she was as a person. But I felt you doing that at every stage of this book. I felt those moments. I really tried to at the at the very beginning of the chapters where I thought I gotta I really have to set the scene. And there was a local author here in Boston uh, named Stephen Paleo, who he, I think he's on his eighth book now, but um, he was an early reader too. And he was actually my first pitch, my first ever pitch of this story. And he said, you know, if she's on a train, you know, you have to say, is she going to on a train? Is she in a car? If she's on the phone, does it have a cord? Is it a rotary? You know, you have to <laughs> describe all of these things to make her come alive. And that really, that sunk in. And uh, I tried to I tried to do that. Okay. So she was on the phone a lot. <laughs> Let's talk about that. She uses the technology of the time is how you write it. Yes. And she on her desk would have multiple phones. Yes. And is talked about as having being able to hold conversation and pivot through using that technology. Yes. So in the 1920s, you know, she's born at the turn of the century, basically. So she's 28 years old. She's a, a busy businesswoman in New York. She has a husband. They have a son, a, a baby, baby boy. And when she's 28 years old, she meets Eleanor Roosevelt. And her husband, Franklin, is running for governor. So she gets picked up for the Roosevelt team. And you know, she is, she is learning the political game of New York, you know, how to knock on doors, how to make hundreds of phone calls, you know, Franklin under Franklin Roosevelt's signature, how to send, you know, hundreds and, and even thousands of letters to people to get her candidate uh, elected. And she was part of the, the Roosevelt team that barely won that 1928 election in New York. And um, that obviously changed the trajectory of, of modern American history, because of course, then the Great Depression descends and it's Roosevelt who emerges as the, the leading politician, the only politician really in the country at that time who had an energetic response to the Great Depression. Yes. Her, her strengths of communication, her ability to negotiate and be direct and bring people together is something you see happening, as you mentioned, from very early in her life. Yes, yes. And it's the hallmark of what keeps her on staff for very powerful men of the time. You're absolutely right. She's not only, you know, when, when Roosevelt won the 1932 presidential election, it wasn't long before he asked her to be part of the New Deal and made her the regional director, the only woman regional director of these massive New Deal programs, uh, the National Recovery Act, then the Social Security program. So she was in charge, Anna Rosenberg, who had never, she didn't have a college degree, let alone a law school degree, but she's in charge of hundreds of lawyers and multiple field offices. And she's signing up New York state for social security. And she would have women, you know, say to her, I can't give you my real age because my husband doesn't know. Yes. And she would say, uncle Sam, uncle Sam and I will keep your secret. So 
She has a, an amazing gift to, to work on big projects with lots of people, but still have that one-on-one empathy for ordinary people. Yes. That you write about that so beautifully. Uh, let's go, let's go in that direction. As well as being very good at communicating with people and arbitrating things, she's also a really good problem solver. She brings solutions. Solving problems before other people could realize they were problems, I think is what Eleanor Roosevelt said, or something to that effect. So in 1941, there's going to be a march on Washington from Black Americans under the leadership of A. Philip Randolph because they're not being hired for defense jobs. And it's unfair. And Roosevelt relies on Anna Rosenberg to mediate a solution between the White House and the Black leadership that's satisfactory to both sides. And it worked. And then she gets dispatched to Buffalo, where contracts are being defaulted upon for lack of workers. And she put together a a logistic plan to almost get, you know, 100,000 workers at that very vital defense hub. And if you'd gone back and looked at the Time magazines and the Saturday Evening Post from 1943 and 42... Um, The Buffalo Plan was something that you'd read in all those magazines. It was her plan. In fact, Time called it the Rosenberg Plan. And it was a labor plan that allowed the arsenal of democracy to fire at full bore. And it was rolled out from the East Coast to the West Coast. And, um, you know, even the the Manhattan Project, she not only sent 10,000 workers from New York to work at those sites, but when the secrecy of the Manhattan Project was imperiled, Roosevelt again asked her to mediate a solution, and she did. And that's all before being sent overseas to the battle zone. Yes, then she's overseas. This, I thought, was so... Up to this point, you've already mentioned things that still feel relevant today about representation and fighting against segregation. Yes, yes. Being an example for women in roles of power um, and decision-making. You know, she... All of these things still feel very... Very much so, yes. Very relevant today. And then I get to the section where she's... She's sent overseas and she's tasked with helping the men transition home. Yes. And this is the beginning or the precursor, the beginnings of the GI Bill. Can you talk about her role in that? Yes, it's the Servicemen's Readjustment Act um, had been signed in June of 44, but it had sort of been, there's, there's actually one historian that says it had sort of been written out on a napkin. They didn't have a great idea of what exactly this was going to be, the GI Bill. All they knew is they had to do better than they did in World War I when veterans got $60 and a train ride home. That's all they got. So they knew they had to do something better. They just weren't quite sure what the direction of it would be in 45 and 46 and 47. Roosevelt sends Anna Rosenberg as his personal emissary to Nazi-occupied France. This is only like eight weeks after D-Day. And she's with the men you know, as they're, before they even broke out from San Lo. She's there very early on. She sees what they saw dead enemy, dead Americans, ruined villages, widows and orphans. And over six weeks or so in Europe, as they cross France, you know, with she was with Patton's army and they're crossing France and liberating France along the way. She's talking to these men in the in the hundreds and, you know, they're sharing their dreams and their hopes and they're, you know, she's sleeping in tents. She's eating meals off the hood of a Jeep with them, rations. She's listening to their stories as they take their sweethearts, you know, picture of their sweethearts out of their helmet. And what they told her really surprised her. And it was they wanted a college education. They didn't want to learn how to operate a new factory machine when they got back, if they were lucky enough to get back. They didn't want to, you know, learn a new vocation. They they wanted to have a college education, an opportunity to better themselves and their and their their families. And this generation, you know, Teresa, remember, had 
lived through the Great Depression and then war. And to go to college was something only wealthy young men could have. But for these millions of GIs, that's what they wanted, a piece of the America they were trying to help save. And when she came back and told President Roosevelt this, she said he lit up with, with just delight. <laughs> and in 46 and 47, you know, after Roosevelt was gone, but the, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act gained its educational thrust. And that's largely how we remember it today. Yes. The fact that she was there so early, and then he also sends her back again. She goes back towards the end. I just, it was amazing to me that she'd had that experience, that she was put in that position. Um, and then, you know, I don't know, you describe her, uh, her pants tucked into her boots and she's, you know, she's not in a skirt and heels. She's, all, she's like you just said, she's sleeping um, on the ground and her commitment to hearing their personal needs yes. really comes through in the way you've written about it. She, on those two trips to Europe, and I'll talk just briefly about the second trip. Uh, the second trip in 1945 was, she was ordered to go there by Roosevelt. It was his, his last lunch he ever had at the White House. He died only a couple of weeks later. On the day he died, April 12th, 1945, Anna was actually at the White House and heard the news. And they, they went and fetched uh, the first lady who was at a club in Washington and mourned the president that day together. But then only days later, she's in Europe because Truman had sent her, you know, she'd been ordered by Roosevelt, but Truman, you know, sent her on that mission. Yeah. And the mission was to follow up with the GIs. But by the time she was in Europe, the Americans and the Russians had already uh, liberated the first concentration camps. So uh, Eisenhower, General Eisenhower wanted Americans to bear witness to this, journalists, Congress people. But Anna Rosenberg was already there. So she was flown to the Nordhausen concentration camp where she was one of the first allied women to see a liberated concentration camp. And she said very profoundly, she said, few of these women could stand erect. They are still wearing like the, the ragged prison uniforms. And she was wearing her whack uniform and her, her handbag. And she always carried a man's briefcase. And when these women approached her, she wanted to give them food or clothing, but she didn't have either. So she reached in her handbag and gave lipsticks and a compact to the women. And in the briefcase, she gave pencils and notebooks. And she was, you know, tortured a little bit by the by insufficiency of that gesture later. But then she she told the, the audience where she only spoke about this once, but she told the audience, looking at their faces, they'd been given back a little bit of their humanity, even a tiny bit. But it was it was um, it was something. So, uh, yes, two trips to wartime Europe and um you know, that that gave her or, or earned her the first ever Medal of Freedom ever awarded uh, man or woman in American history. Amazing that I don't know her name before I read your book. Like, that is amazing. But what you just said about that she only spoke about that once is part of the reason for that, I think, right? Like, she does not toot her own horn. <laughs> I know that's the reason for the title, right? She's the confidant. She keeps the confidant of the people that she serves. And she does not seek glory in her lifetime. She liked the attention from the journalists. She liked the attention from the photographers, but the stories, she never let them be about her. It was always about, you know, the commander in chief, or it was always about the GIs and what they need. It was always about, you know, America. It was never about her. And she was asked by Eleanor Roosevelt to see a biographer. Eleanor had a, the name of a biographer and said, you know, Anna, I want you to see this person. She she wrote back and said, I'm just not interested. It's just not going to happen. And 
Edward R. Murrow, the great journalist, said, Anna, you have quite a book to write someday. And she said, Ed, that's a book that will never be written. And the main reason is the one you mentioned. It's she had been told things by Franklin Roosevelt in 150 meetings, which is more than most cabinet members, in confidence. And the idea that she would cash in and and make a memoir and, and reveal even some of these things was just anathema. She just wouldn't do it. And, you know, at the at the same time, her reluctance to trumpet her own career also was complicated by the fact that in 1950, uh, atomic spies with the same surname were arrested, um, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. So that made her, I think, double down on her just wanting to quote, she said this even, to fade out of the picture after she'd solved the problems. I'm glad you you bring up that time frame because she is also personally attacked. Um, she's she has the trust of the most powerful men in the United States, and she has not only their trust, but they um, they assign her things that are of great importance. Right? They value her tremendously, and yet she comes under scrutiny and. F- an unjustified fire through the McCarthy era. Yes, that's right. You just detail that so brutally. She had, she was sort of the perfect storm to be attacked by them, actually. She was. So she gets back to the United States after World War II and gets the first Medal of Freedom ever awarded. Um, one of the Pentagon officials, top Pentagon officials said Anna meant business in winning World War II. And then she does Veterans Affairs stuff in New York, where she's the, the executive of New York City Veterans Affairs. And then she gets on with her life. Um, You know, she buys the apartment after decades of renting. Her son, who also served in World War II, is at her side as she's rebuilding her public relations and labor relations business. And life is good. And then she opens up a letter from from General George Marshall, who's now the Secretary of Defense. It's 1950. And General Marshall says, Dear Anna, I hope you can find your your way back down to Washington because I need help at the Pentagon uh, to rebuild the size and strength of the U.S. Army. So she, if she was reluctant to leave her, her apartment in New York and her new business or her, her rebuilt business, she knew that she had to, she had to do it. She venerated General Marshall and she knew that she was a patriot. She was patriotic. She had to do this. And she goes to the Pentagon. She actually begins work in an interim appointment. And all that's needed is the full Senate approval. And Joe McCarthy and a, a radio host named Fulton Lewis uh, join forces and create a smear campaign against her trying to label her as a secret communist. And the linchpin is this guy in New York that they find named Ralph DeSola, who will testify that he saw Anna Rosenberg at a communist cell meeting back in the 30s. And over two weeks in December 1950, this riveted Washington and riveted the nation um, because the Senate Armed Services Committee had to reopen the hearings and determine whether Anna Rosenberg was a secret communist or not. Yes, and she defends herself in person. Yes. You write about this scene and she swears. Uh, she, ha- she has colorful language throughout the book. She is not afraid to use the language of an arbitrator in a labor negotiation. You know, she's that's right. She's comfortable with language. But this this scene where she's she's confronting them, um it's it was the most compelling part of the book because I really felt like um it felt like today. It felt like sure did, yeah. there was something about this sort of smear campaign is what you called it, right? These untruths, yes. these things that we know are, are fabricated to attack 
not based on her performance or her integrity in her jobs, right. but for maybe they're anti-feminist, maybe they're uh, anti-Semitic. Under the guise of this sort of, we're protecting the United States from communism. You're absolutely 100% right. That's exactly what this was. And even more importantly, they knew or had to know this was a lie. Yes. This was Anna, this Anna Rosenberg, um, they knew, was a dedicated public servant, uh, a lifelong anti-communist, and uh, a dedicated patriot. And they knew that. But they lied. They conjured up this smear campaign. One commentator says it was uh, what anti it's anti it's anti-Semitism masquerading as anti-communism. But her being a woman, her being a new dealer, her being a an immigrant with an accent, that was the bullseye, as you said. You know, she wore the bullseye, she was the perfect storm. And it was remarkable when she face to face went up against her attackers. And you know, so many women had already had their careers ended prematurely by McCarthy and his and his allies. And yet Anna Rosenberg was just not going to let that happen. As you were writing that in this time frame so long ago, and yet it felt like the power of a lie with a mouthpiece, I thought it was ironic and interesting that it was a national radio syndicate uh, that, that distributed these lies. Yes. It was a letter writing and radio campaign. It was a smear campaign that utilized media. Yes. Weaponized it weaponized it yes and i felt in those moments where she was being questioned i thought oh the liars could be victors you know oh sure and were for many many careers were ended and they they could claim victory um just not when you tangle with anna rosenberg (laughs) so that was you know and the, the there's a kind of an elegant ending to this is when Joe McCarthy was finally censured in the United States Senate, it was a, a, a woman senator from Maine that sort of put the nail in the coffin, made it so that he would be censured. And, you know, he was he was dead only a couple of years later, having really been a terrible, terrible alcoholic. So he was a tortured guy, Joe McCarthy, but he did not uh, was not successful in damaging Anna Rosenberg's credibility or integrity. I was cheering for her, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is part of your. Part of your mission, I'm sure, in in writing this is that people should cheer for her. I kept waiting to come across something where some criticism of her that maybe was was well-founded or maybe she worked on a problem that she kind of botched or maybe she just took a wrong step or maybe she said the wrong thing to the wrong person. I never, she was consistent. She was consistently really wonderful at what she did. And her consistency was, not only in her hard work and her ability to problem solve and her empathy, she made you feel like if you were a teamster or if you were Nelson Rockefeller, like you were the only person in the world. And these were all consistent, as was her patriotism and her idealism in democracy and the expansion of the franchise. By expanding the franchise, we make our country the the greatest country it can possibly be and all consistent throughout her life. Yeah. So why... Why haven't we heard about her? You know, why? You must have been in some ways excited to be the mouthpiece finally, right? Oh, boy. Yes. As you're going through the treasure trove feeling like, oh, I can't wait to tell everybody. <laughs> I felt like I I really do. I, I felt and I feel even now that I won sort of the history lottery in finding this this wonderful story to, it's not, it's bringing her back to history because she was a famous person you know, she was in she profiled in the New Yorker in 1938. And 
you know, photo essay in Life magazine in 1952. She was on TV in 1959 and, you know, meet the press and on radio and in all the major newspapers. So bringing her back because she had been forgotten and it was a combination of her natural reluctance that we talked about. It was the combination of the, the, uh, the unfortunate coincidence of last name. It was the fact that there's no Harvard or Yale or Princeton to keep her flame alive like you have for Francis Perkins. You know, Francis Perkins has Penn and Columbia. Anna Rosenberg doesn't. And that was also an issue. And then you have the, you know, the what what you pointed out is this. uh, She just was not going to uh, share what she had been told in confidence. So she is the confidant first, last and always. And um, and also, you know, and and some of the folks I interviewed for the book knew her, including her grandson, um, knew her toward the end of her life, you know, the last 15 years or so. And what they said was they could see the pictures on the wall, the President Roosevelt and Truman and General Marshall, but she didn't talk about that stuff. Even at the very end of her life, even when she was in her late 70s and 80s, it was, you know, it was just, it was, wasn't about her. It was about let's continue the work. And, and you know, when newspapers would interview her late in her life, she wanted to talk about, you know, Ronald Reagan, who had fired all of the, you know, air traffic controllers, you know, it wasn't, she didn't want to go back and talk about the past. Yes. And yet I feel like her past is so important today. You know, these major initiatives that she worked on, including um, medical research, right? Like investing in, in encouraging our government to invest in medical research. And mental health, like I think even her connection to the soldiers, like these are still things we're talking about the importance of today, um, as well as sort of representation in the workplace and equality in access to education. And, uh, you know, she was part of this desegregating these major institutions. Um, And yet, and those, there's still momentum needed in those arenas today. You're absolutely right. Um, You know, you think about mental health for veterans and you know, she was at really the forefront of that. And part of it is she had seen what they'd seen. There's a photograph of her over a, a German corpse in, in this really nasty part of France where there was a terrible battle. It was the Falaise Gap in 1944, and it was a killing field. And she drove through that with the troops. So she saw everything they saw. She said they will return to the United States different men than when they left. And she knew that. She, she might have been different. So when she gets back to New York, you know, she really wanted to rally the government to include more mental health benefits to the GI Bill. And, you know, people I don't think were quite ready for that. You know, the PTSD hadn't really, they weren't calling it that and and they weren't really addressing it, you know, and she she was kind of attacked in some newspaper articles from, from some folks on the other side of the aisle for, you know, wanting to teach the GIs how to go back and live in their own homes again. But it was, wasn't that easy. You know, some of these other guys just said, you know, we, we couldn't talk about it with our families, but we wish we could have talked about it with somebody. Yes, the, that was a part of the book where I just thought, oh, you could have this exact same conversation today. Sure. Yeah. You know, did you feel that like echoes in her life of things that she saw as important that she rallied for? I, I really did. You know, we have come through in the last five or six years as a country. I think a lot of us have realized the importance of having women in leadership roles. Uh, in in, in decision-making roles and how that could be linked to the survival of democracy. And maybe that's an overstatement, maybe it's not, but, you know, having 50% of of Americans sidelined out of politics doesn't work. We need more women at decision-making levels. 
And uh, I love to see it. You know, you have Michigan, you have New York, you have more women in Congress than ever before. And yeah, it took too long for Anna Rosenberg and too long for a lot of us. But, you know, you can draw a line between Francis Perkins and Anna Rosenberg and Eleanor Roosevelt, two people like Madeleine Albright and Condi Rice, and then to today, where we have, it seems like a wave of women interested in, in, in having, taking, you know, doing what it takes to get positions of decision-making power and to do, make their country the best country it can possibly be. Yes. Beautifully said. I think it's really important to find that thread. Yes. And her thread is so strong. There's so many reasons to hold on to her story. She really is an example to all of us, of, of to all Americans, not just women, but to what it means to be an exemplary citizen and to, you know, have your country's ideals. And this is important to have your, your nation's ideals uh, ahead of your own personal ideals. And we see this so often today in our politics where, you know, there's it's performance. And, and you're out there in front of the cameras and you're performing for some political points, but it's not moving the needle in any appreciable direction. You're not improving the lives of Americans. Now compare that with Anna Rosenberg, who spent a lot of her career behind the curtain, but yet when you open up that curtain, you see America becoming a, a, a grander and fairer country. Yeah, yeah. And that's who we need. You know, we need people like that you know, and not people that are into the performative politics. It must have been such a great thing for your for your own students. Like you you discussed at the very beginning, this sort of moment that you were like, oh, let's look into this. And then you're like, wow. So this was during COVID too, right? Like yes. you did hit some roadblocks because of the timing. There were, yeah. And I, in my acknowledgements, I, I give a big shout out to the research librarians at various libraries because during COVID, you know, a lot of them either weren't at the library or they were at the library one day a week or even one day a month. And so many of them on that one day a week or one day a month, you know, did my bidding and got the documents that I was asking for and sent them to me. And without their help, you know, there is no book, you know, Eisenhower Library, Truman Library, FDR Library, uh, you know, from Ann Arbor to Yale, you know, crisscrossing the country. I needed a lot of help from a lot of uh, library professionals and research folks, and they they came through. So credit to them as well uh, for getting Anna Rosenberg back in the historical discussion. Yes, you cannot overstate the importance of of libraries as receptacles. Like where where else would her story have been? There's a, there's another point to this. There's another angle to this. You know, I'm not sure a writer of history or a historian could have put together a full narrative history on Anna Rosenberg without the internet. You need historical newspaper databases. You need to be able to access a lot of libraries in a very short amount of time. You know, it wasn't just looking at her papers at Harvard. It was Bernard Baruch's papers at, at Princeton or uh, Francis Perkins at Columbia or Fulton Lewis at Syracuse. And, you know, to be able to get those without traveling to all those locations and spending weeks and months researching is really a gift of technology. So Yes. Just as anti-technology, so uh, do modern researchers. Yes, that's a very good point. You really made the most of the technology of your time. You must still be in touch with your with your students. Do you feel like you ignited future historians? And did you did you see that you sort of able to pass a torch of the the love for discovery like that? Yeah, there's they in a way ignited me because you know, and this kind of brings us back to the beginning of our discussion, you know, how was I to tell this story? And, you know, trying to engage 17-year-olds at 7.35 in the morning, you have to be a storyteller. 
And so I learned over the last you know 10 or 12 years of teaching to be a storyteller and to package the lessons into stories that are memorable and you know they're emotive in some ways. Some some of them are funny. And I think that's been something I, I do think some of my students, quite a lot of them actually have picked up on that that's sort of stuck to the Velcro. You know, you can the storytelling and the history are sort of one and the same. And, you know, that's the craft of, of teaching history is to package it in a way that, you know, you remember it and you want to tell other people and share that. So I, I think that's worked. Ah, I love that. Um, okay. So the last question I usually ask, and then I will let you go, I promise, to your class. Um, so the name of the podcast is Desideratum, which is a Latin word that means things that are desired as essential. So I like to ask storytellers like you, for you, what is most essential? You know, I guess I'm 53, and if I would package a little bit of life lesson philosophy, it would be, you know, try and, you know, get out there and walk in the woods or, you know, um, spend some time in nature, um, read, you know, it doesn't really even matter what you read, but but give your brain some good things to chew on and give your body some nice spaces to, to be in and um, keep that mind open and keep that heart open. You know, I pretty pretty straightforward, I think. Yes, yes, because it takes both, doesn't it? Sure does. I think I, I really do think there's a balance. You know, I I'm a, a I ride bikes a lot. I, I don't I don't know if I'm a cyclist, but I like riding my bike. And it <laughs> when I don't do it, you know, Teresa, when I don't go on the bike for two weeks, I'm kind of a grouch. So I do think there's a balance. You know, get out there in the woods and take your mountain bike or whatever you have to do. Hike, go hiking, climb one of those fourteen thousand footers. But it's good for the soul. It's good for the brain too. Yes, one feeds the other. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, breathing deeply. Okay, was there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to make sure that you talked about? I I always forget this story. It's about the Liberty ships and I'm gonna tell you the story. Okay. It goes back to the Buffalo plan, how it works. So Anna sent a bunch of excess, there was a lot of excess workers in New York and there wasn't enough in Portland, Oregon. So Anna's sending white workers and black workers to Oregon. Oregon is only hiring the white workers. Anna stops the flow immediately. You have to hire everybody or we're not going to send anymore. So then they agree to do that. And now the flow is back on and the workers are at the shipyards. The first Liberty ship that ever was built, these big cargo ships that ferried materials to our allies and to our troops, was uh, took 131 days to build. After the Buffalo plan, uh, the keel of the Robert E. Peary was laid on a Sunday and it set sail four days, 15 hours, and 29 minutes later. A woman was there to christen the ship, and she was too late. A dock worker yelled, just keep standing there, ma'am. There'll be another one along in a minute. Wow. Yes. You know, the numbers, the sheer numbers of, like, I don't think we, I don't think I have remembered that from history that building up the war machine and what it required of of all of America. Yeah, that's a great example of it though. Yeah, you know, it's, it, you know, we, we've seen the posters of Rosie the Riveter and it's a, it's a great, that's a great symbol. You know, women working at the Boeing factory to build the bombers that are winning the war. But, you know, when you look even deeper at that, it's, it's Rosie the Riveter uh, in Buffalo getting off her shift at three in the morning and looking for a safe place to cash her check. And maybe she has, you know, two kids at home and, you know, she needs childcare and she needs a safe place to cash her check rather than the tavern. 
And part of the, the Rosenberg plan, the Buffalo plan was all of that, all of that logistical uh, support. So she was something else. I hope you enjoyed hearing Christopher tell Anna Marie's life stories as much as I did. You can hear the rest of the audiobook, narrated by Anne Richardson, at Libro.fm. Following the Libro.fm affiliate link in the show notes and in the Desideratum social media bios supports this podcast. You can also use the podcast's discount code, DP20, to save 20% off your whole purchase on the publisher's website, kensingtonbooks.com. I always learn something new from Kensington authors. Thanks to Anne Pryor for connecting me to Christopher. Thanks to Tantor Audio for the moments from the audiobook. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>